HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. The following program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery. Kane Vineyard and Winery supports Heritage Radio and the growing movement to change how Americans eat and how we think about our planet. For more information, visit www.kane5.com. Welcome to this episode of Straight No Chaser on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and we're live in the studio today with Alex Prudhomme, the author of The Ripple Effect, The Fate of Freshwater in the 21st Century. Alex is best known for his earlier book, My Life in France, a memoir he co-wrote with his great-aunt, Julia Child. Welcome to the studio, Alex. Um, Thanks so much for joining me today, and uh, tell me, what inspired you to write The Ripple Effect? Well, there are two answers. The first is a sort of long-range one. Um, I was one of those people born with water on the brain. I've just always loved water. Uh, I love to fish and swim and ski and just stare at the waves blankly. Um... And so I was predisposed to pay attention to water issues. I was an oceanography major in uh, minor in uh, college, and uh, I've always been fascinated by aquatic things. Um, but the specific um, moment when I began this book was when I was working with Julia. Uh, we were sitting in her kitchen in uh, Santa Barbara uh, having lunch, and as we often did, we shared a bottle of French mineral water. And Julia was explaining how Uh, The French view mineral water as a health digestive, uh, healthy digestive. Um, The French will buy particular waters uh, for their flavors and for their mineral content, which they believe has health benefits. And in contrast, Americans buy bottled water as a quick, convenient beverage. And we like our bottled water without any flavor, taste, or minerals of any kind in it. And I thought, well, that's an interesting idea for an article, you know, looking at this one product through the the prism of two cultures. Um, And that night, we had dinner with her niece and uh, her niece's husband, Bob Moran. And Bob Moran is a globetrotting hydrogeologist. 
I think of him as an Indiana Jones of water, <laughs> goes around the world doing these fascinating projects. And he said, oh, well, bottled water, yeah, that's, that's kind of interesting, that's, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, he said that water is going to be the defining resource of this century. He said, this is, this is the story of the 21st century, uh, which made my ears perk up. And um, I started to pay attention to this. And even as I was finishing up uh, Julia's memoir and, and doing a book tour for that, I began reporting on water. And I realized that this was something much larger than an article. This was a book uh, because I've come to believe very strongly that Bob was, was correct, that, that water um, will define this century much as oil defined the last century. And in fact, uh, the... Oil uh, as a dominant resource is an anomaly. Uh, if you look back at human history, water has always defined where we live and how we live and whether or not we live. Uh, it's an essential resource. Uh, oil is a very important resource, and we can uh, we would suffer greatly without it. Um, but uh, we could survive without oil. You cannot survive without water. Right. And so uh, off I went, and I followed the story, and I went up to Poland Springs in Maine and learned about bottled water. I went down to New Orleans and learned about the levees that failed there during Katrina. I went out to uh, Las Vegas and, and learned about their water problems and down to Texas where I met T. Boone Pickens, who's an oil and gas billionaire who wants to privatize the Ogallala Aquifer. Mm -hmm. I went up to California, <clears throat> spent time in the Sacramento Delta, which could be the site of the next mega flood. And then I went out to Alaska um, where I discovered an interesting resource war that pits uh, the last pristine sockeye salmon fishery in the world against a potentially enormous uh, copper and gold mine. In Bristol Bay. In Bristol Bay. Yeah. And I've actually just come back from there. Uh, I was up there reporting. I'm going to be doing a follow-up story for the Condé Nast Traveler. It's coming out next year about what's happening there. That story uh, people will be hearing a lot more about next year. Um, and it's fascinating. And it's the kind of thing uh, that we're going to be seeing more of across the country and around the world because, as Bob Moran explained, um, water underlies every other resource. So whether you're uh, building a house or you are growing crops or you are uh, fabricating computer chips or you're mining for gold or what have you, all of these things require large volumes of water and they often uh, emit large amounts of pollution. And with the growth in population and with climate change and shifting demographics and uh, shifting diets, um, we're getting to a point uh, now, a sort of tipping point, where we can no longer do all these things the way we always have, and we're going to have to start making some very difficult decisions about how we prioritize our water use. So, in the case of the Alaska story, the essential question is, uh, are we going to fish for salmon, uh, which we've done for thousands of years up there, or are we going to uh, dig up the headwaters and extract um, gold and copper, uh, which are very, it's a very polluting process and requires a lot of water and will essentially destroy the salmon fishery. And that's a really emotional, difficult question. Um, and, you know, those are the kinds of things that, that you know, like it or not, we're going to be confronted with. Um, can you, um, can you tell us a little bit more? I, I loved the parts about, in the book about, um, how, how uh, back in the turn of the 20th century, the whole Mulholland, William Mulholland story and, and basically the Chinatown uh, story for that movie, you know, which I think everybody's thought of as kind of fiction, but actually it was based in fact. And it's, it's a kind of a, that grab for water rights is an ongoing story in the West. And 
what will happen? I mean, why can people do that? Why can they buy water rights? I guess is is the best question I can come up with. It's like, how do you get that? How do you get that right? How do you get that privilege? That's a complicated story, but it's fascinating. Um, just to, to give the listeners a background, in the 30s, um, Los Angeles was expanding rapidly and uh, needed more water. And the closest place, because Los Angeles is a desert, yeah. by the way. <laughs> well, like Las Vegas, which well, is like a similar Vegas, story right, in exactly. that sense. And that story is continuing today. But uh, uh, Los Angeles essentially used... Um, um, every technique in the book, including some that were illegal to acquire the water rights in the Owens Valley, which is 185 miles uh, northeast of the city, and uh, to pump the water uh, to the city and to the valley, and, um, you know, made some of the the politicians there uh, very wealthy men um, at the expense of the people living in the valley. And that's a story that's been repeated across the country. in fact, people don't realize this, but New York City is actually not so different from Los Angeles. Mm. Um, I grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan looking at the Hudson River, and when you're a kid, you think, oh, you turn on the tap, the water comes out. It probably comes from that river out there. But in fact, New York's water, uh, most of it comes from the Delaware and the Catskill Mountains, and that stuff is about 120 miles away. And it's brought down here by a really amazing water system uh, that's been engineered to use mostly gravity to bring the water down. The problem is that much of that system is over 100 years old and it's falling apart now. And so one of the reporting trips I took uh, to do this book was I went 600 feet beneath Manhattan into the city's new water tunnel number three, which they are digging out as fast as they can because tunnels one and two are so old they're about to uh, collapse. And uh, if that were to happen, the city would be waterless, essentially. And that would basically shut the city down so you know Wouldn't we like to, to think that we're um so in some senses morally superior to los angeles but actually <laughs> we're not that different and and very few people realize this um and the story as you indicated is continuing in las vegas uh, las vegas is um one of the most rapidly growing cities in the nation despite foreclosures and and the recession um and uh they uh rely for 90% of their water on Lake Mead, which is the giant reservoir created by the Colorado River. And uh, the Colorado River Basin is now in its 13th year of drought. And if you go to Lake Mead, you'll see um, a really amazing site, which is what they call the bathtub ring. It's a big white ring that goes all around the, the edge of the lake, and it's the calcium deposits, and it shows you where the water used to be. And now Lake Mead's at an all-time low, and they're... Um, there's no end in sight, really. Um, and they're really, really concerned about it because not only are they running out of drinking water, but um, Hoover Dam, which impounds the, the lake, um, uh, has giant turbines in it, which creates a lot of electricity. And if the water gets too low, those turbines won't be able to spin. And so you see the ramifications of this playing out over time. And so they've what they've done is they, much like L.A., have gone up to... Um, North uh, Central uh, Nevada, which is some beautiful, uh, sparsely populated ranching country, um, and kind of quietly bought up a number of very large ranches up there. And the intention is to build a 300-mile pipeline down to Las Vegas. Well, lo and behold, um, things have changed since the days of, of, uh, of the Owens Valley water grab that 
Los Angeles undertook. And uh, so nowadays there are um, Endangered Species Acts. There are Indian claims on the water. Um, the ranchers have uh, been very vocal in their opposition to having their valleys drained. And by the way, there's the state of Utah, which shares those basins, and they're not so keen on, on losing the water either. So it's not clear what's going to happen with that water pipeline. But, um, you know, you look at a city like Denver and its suburbs, which is just booming. I was recently out there, and um, the problem with Denver is that um, it's on the front side of the range, and the most of the water is on the back side of the range uh, of the Rockies. And how do you get water to the where the people are? Um, and... So there are already tunnels that have been dug through the mountains, and they're looking at diverting rivers and um, all sorts of extreme things, and water rates there are extraordinary. And, you know, this is the only going to be compounded by climate change and population growth. Let's take a really short break right now and uh, come back in just a minute with Alex Prudhomme, author of The Ripple Effect, The Fate of Fresh Water in the 21st Century. You're listening to Straight No Chaser. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and in the studio with me today is Alex Prudhomme, author of The Ripple Effect, The Fate of Freshwater in the 21st Century. Alex, we were talking a few minutes ago about um, the proposed copper mine up in the um, Bristol Bay in Alaska as one one place where um, energy needs and mineral needs are being pitted against water needs. Another place much closer to home, of course, is the Delaware Basin and the Catskills, where a major um, environmental battle has been going on about hydrofracking. And hydrofracking, and also, by the way, the um, that Keystone Pipeline, um, which is going to be bringing down uh, supposedly oil from the oil sands. These are two technologies that use unbelievable quantities of water, and as you pointed out, return them to nature heavily polluted. What's you know? Why don't you describe a little bit of the impact of those technologies and what we could expect in terms of energy companies picking up the tab on, say, any remediation? And why is the government <laughs> powerless to stop this? Yeah. What's happening? Well, um, let me just uh, hydrofracking, as people may know, is the uh, process of, of extracting natural gas from deep beneath uh, the earth uh, from shale rock formations. And shale rock is very hard, and the way you extract the gas is that you drill a hole into the shale, and you inject water with a mysterious mixture of chemicals into it. 126 different chemicals, a proprietary blend, which has not been released to the EPA or the public. Exactly. Um, Which is outrageous, uh, because, uh, well, the way that happened was that Dick Cheney uh, organized uh, something called the Halliburton Loophole, Uh which is... um, an exclusion from the Clean Water Act, which allows the uh, hydrofracking companies to use this mixture of chemicals as a quote-unquote proprietary technology, so they don't have to tell the public what is in there. The problem is that um, when you frack, uh, it has the force of a bomb going off, essentially. 
and it cracks open the rock underground. And once you frack that rock, you can't unfrack it. There's no way of remediating that. And in a best case scenario, what it does is it opens up these deposits of gas and you can capture that and um, use it as a supposedly clean fuel. Um, the reality is that it's often not that uh, clean and easy and that um, it is believed that the fracking fluid can seep through uh, the cracks in the rock and uh, infiltrate groundwater supplies. Um, the other thing is it takes tremendous amounts of water to, uh, to actually drill and to extract the gas. Um, that water then becomes polluted uh, with the fracking fluid and with methane and with um, naturally occurring um, uh, radioactive uh, substances. Um, so the question is, what do you do with that? Uh, it turns out that most of America's water treatment facilities are not equipped to deal with that. Mm -hmm. um, and so what they've been doing is they're either illegally uh, dumping it on the ground or into waterways, or they are um, pumping it into giant holding ponds, um, which are held up by earthen dams. Um, and there was a great deal of concern over the summer when Hurricane Irene came and swept through the region. Uh, what happened, uh, what would happen if, uh, you know, a hurricane like that um, washed away those earthen berms or, uh, you know, flooded those ponds and washed a whole bunch of toxic water into local waterways, you know? Uh, luckily, that didn't happen, but that was pure luck. I mean, if the storm had been a little bit stronger... It could have been a real disaster, and the regulators and the fracking companies were completely unprepared for that eventuality. Um, and Although, so that kind of put the scare in people a bit. Yeah, I'm going to interrupt you just for a yeah. second, because we did have a representative from the New York State Oil and Gas Association on the show a few mm -hmm. um, couple of months ago, right after Irene. And he claims that they are now um, putting that, that um, what is it called? Um, I forget, but the, the water that comes back up into enclosed... Um, containers, which I found a very dubious claim. And according to my environmentalist friend, Wes Gillingham at the Casco Mountain Keeper, it, was just, it just means bigger ponds. But according to the Oil and Gas Association, they have this under control. They know what they're doing. So, um, Well, those guys have done themselves a really a big disservice by being so kind of sneaky about this. I think mm -hmm. if they had just come out in the beginning and said, look, this is proprietary, but since this is a, a health issue, we'll tell you what's in our fracking fluid. They would have gained a lot of public support. Instead, what they did is said, no, we're not going to tell you what's in it. And by the way, it's safe. And that just got everybody's <laughs> dander up. And you, well, say, you know, says who? Yeah. And the fact that they've been so obstructionist about it ever since then um, has really harmed them. And uh, I think just in the last couple of days, the governor of Delaware has come out and uh, put at least a temporary ban on fracking in Delaware. Uh, that's not going to help the people in Pennsylvania and New York State and Virginia where uh, there, there is uh, like fracking continues. But um, it's the first uh, of a potential domino effect that that could happen um, when, uh, you know, people really need to take a deep breath and and take a look at this and see um, if there is a way to use fracking that is less environmentally harmful and less impactful on human and, and, and ecological health. Uh, as for Keystone XL, that infamous pipeline runs from Alberta, Canada, down to the Gulf Coast of Mexico. Uh, and it Texas. was proposed to go through the Ogallala Aquifer. Exactly. It was gonna, it, the, the original route was taking it right through Nebraska, where there's a very um, environmentally sensitive area there. Um, and it, uh, it, uh, underlying that pipeline is the Ogallala Aquifer. 
uh, which is the largest underground water supply in North America. It, underground, it underlies seven states and essentially flows from you know just south of Canada all the way down into Mexico. And it is uh, in, in the Ogallala is where uh, T. Boone Pickens, the oil and gas billionaire, wants to um, suck the water out of there and sell it to the highest bidder. Um, as you may know, Texas in the midst of a record-breaking Record. drought, even worse than um, the, the 1930s Dust Bowl. Uh, I was recently there, and you know you could smell the smoke from the wildfires, and uh, you see the brown terrain and the and the cows that are just emaciated, and it's, it's horrible. It's horrible. Well, and, they've had to slaughter thousands of cattle because they can't water them right Um, it's it's had a huge impact rippling all the way through the 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 meat industry i mean it's really i follow that very closely and it's really been interesting to see um the impact of of what everybody denies is climate change and yet none of these ranchers and none of these meat processors have ever seen anything like the drought that has taken over uh in texas and has been ongoing really for several years um let's take one more 30 second break and then come back i want to talk a little bit about um about water future but also about the impact on our food supplies and population growth You're listening to Straight No Chaser. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We're broadcasting on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. In the studio with me today is Alex Prudhomme, author of The Ripple Effect, The Fate of Fresh Water in the 21st Century. Um, Alex, we were going to just uh, visit a little bit since we were, I brought up the meat industry, my favorite topic. Um, let's talk a little bit about how dwindling water supplies and growing population uh, is going to have an impact on our food supply. Um, not just here, but around the world, especially in sub-Saharan countries. Um, so what's going to happen? Are we going to be like selling water from country to country, state to state? Uh, are we going to change our crop supply? Uh, what are we going to do? This is one of the biggest concerns of the UN right now. Um, you know, the essential question is, is there enough water to supply this population that's now at 7 billion and is uh, predicted to hit 9 billion by 2050? Mm-hmm. Um, the reason we've gotten to 7 billion was through what's called the Green Revolution, um, which in a sense was using pesticides and fertilizers to uh, enhance our crops and allow a lot more people to be born and to survive in one fashion or another. But, you know, you already have about uh, a billion people today who are, don't have sufficient water or sanitation. So uh, what happens when you have 9 billion on the planet? Um, what is the carrying capacity of the earth when it comes to water? We don't know yet, um, and human ingenuity has a way of working through these difficult questions. But I am personally very concerned about this as someone who follows food like you do. Uh, you know, clearly, <laughs> to grow food, whether it's uh, a farm trout or a, a pig on a giant CAFO farm or an organically grown uh, wine grape, uh, all of these things require water. And... Um, so you have a quality question, which is, you know, what's in the water? And you have a quantity question. Is there enough water? Uh, these things are under increasing pressure right now. And uh, I believe we need to start taking a really serious look at water as an essential resource. We need to learn how to value it more highly. Uh, I, in the book, I even suggest that we do the unthinkable, which is to uh, look at our water policy in a holistic way. You know, uh, in American law... Uh, Eastern water law and Western water law are completely different. 
We don't have a unified set of laws, nor do we have a single federal body that oversees water supplies. We have a whole, something like 23 different federal agencies have some say in what happens to our water. When you look at, a, at nations that are uh, water smart, like Holland or Singapore, for example, uh, these nations all have unified water laws. They have a very serious national policy designed to use water in the most effective way and sustainable way. Um, they are well prepared for climate change, unlike us. Uh, I think it's time for us to start at least having the conversation about America um, appointing maybe a water czar or having a national water board um, and to start looking at our, our water systems um, uh, in, in total, uh, which we don't do right now, because uh, largely because of states' rights, which is a very uh, emotional political subject. Um, you know, right now the rhetoric around any environmental issue is so extreme that it's kind of uh, devolved to the point of white noise. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it's very difficult for the EPA even to do the, its most basic job, uh, keeping our water clean. Um, and yet uh, the same heads have to prevail. We have to keep moving forward. I don't think that we can allow um, extremists to uh, divert us from the important work that we need to do. So. Uh, I, I end up, you know, getting criticized for this because people say, well, you know, because water is a essential resource, how can you concentrate all the power of water in one place, especially Washington, D.C., which seems to be dysfunctional? And the answer is, well, you have to start um, taking this seriously. This isn't a game. This is a life and death question. And whether it's food or human health or ecological health, which are all intertwined, water is at the base of all of those things. And uh, you know, there's great opportunity there. I mean, people don't realize this, but the United States now uses water more effectively, more efficiently, rather, than ever. Um, but there's much more we could do. Uh, on a personal level, we can start conserving water by using low-flow shower heads and uh, uh, low-flush toilets. We can stop putting pharmaceuticals down the drain. Um, as a nation, we can start implement, implementing uh, more effective water policies. And, and I think on the global stage, the United States has a huge opportunity to use water um, as a way to build goodwill and um, and to be a leader in a way that's very positive. You know, if we and the UN uh, were to uh, approach water as a kind of a strategic objective and we were to help developing nations uh, create clean water supplies uh, that are sustainable, um, you know, not only do you stop disease and death and suffering, um, but you're building alliances, you're building, uh, you're, you're, you're forestalling terrorism, um, you're forestalling the uh, potential for water wars, which is very real. Um, and, and as I said, you're building this great goodwill. You know, why don't we do this? It's like it's such a huge opportunity. Uh, my concern is that um, you look at a nation like China, for example, which has had a terrible environmental record until recently. They are now taking water and wind and solar very seriously. And they're they are investing billions of dollars into this, uh, and they're operating at a loss for a strategic gain. And that's something that we are completely clueless about and have not even talked about. Uh, but they are now building a you know multi-billion-dollar desalination plant, and they want to become uh, exporters of clean water and desal technology. Well, guess what? We invented that here. <laughs> Why aren't we doing that? Uh, you know, we have all these very creative guys. We have a lot of capital. We have uh, tremendous political uh, influence. Uh, this is a golden opportunity. Um, so that's my challenge uh, to the nation and to all of us as individuals is to educate ourselves and get involved and then start being proactive.
When uh, when you talk about the desal, though, aren't there uh, aren't there other methods of conserving water? What about like collecting rainwater, for instance, a resource that we don't use at all and which would require very little in the way of of uh, building infrastructure or expensive plants? I mean, absolutely. Yeah. It seems to me that there's a lot. That's of a other... very basic old technology that yeah. you know that we don't use, um, and in some cases, such in some, certain western states, uh, like in Colorado and Montana, for example. They build the rainfall and snowfall into their uh, annual water budget, mm-hmm. and it's actually illegal for homeowners to collect water, which just seems insane to me and to a lot of people out there, um, because they rely on water so much. Um, and they're at the, in Colorado, for example, they're at the headwaters of, of the Colorado River, which supplies seven states in Mexico. Uh, that that there's a whole what they call downstream effect if you start collecting rainwater, but at the same time it seems like that's the most basic uh, water conservation technology one can take. You put a rain barrel out and back, and or you um, you collect it off your roof and um, funnel it into your garden. Um, and there are a lot of great little technologies out there to do this. It's not that hard. Um, I'm actually uh, going to put a rain uh, water collection system into my uh, into my house in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. um, and I would ideally like to have a uh, a green roof at some point. Uh, but you know, um, politics and money uh, tend to. Uh, and ego tend to mess up some of the most obvious uh, solutions. <laughs> Isn't it unbelievable that ego plays a role in whether or not water is... We humans is, are funny, is, aren't we? Oh, my God. It's just, it's mind-blowing. Um, sadly, I think we have to wrap this up. Am I right, Jack? I have I have one thirty here. Um, Alex, can you tell us what, uh, if any, um, any appearances you're going to be making in the area? And, um, and do you have a website that people can go to? Yes, I do. Because they can watch you on The Daily Show, for instance. Oh, I yeah. Did. I had a good time with Jon Stewart, yeah, <laughs> no, was who was good. mocking me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, and on the Don Imus show, which was done where I was talking about oh, drought. God, but uh, yes, weird. the website is www.alexprudhomme.com. And the book is called The Ripple Effect, uh, The Fate of Fresh Water in the 21st Century. Um, I'm doing a lot of speaking these days in various places, and some of them are on the website. Um, and the big news is that there's a documentary film that's been made based on my book. It's coming out next spring. It's called Last Call at the Oasis. It was made by Participant Media, who did Inconvenient Truth, Food Inc., Waiting for Superman, and so on. And it stars people like Aaron Brockovich and uh, serious academics like Peter Glick. And then there's a there's a cameo by Jack Black, or he does a fake ad for a new kind of bottled water that will hit you in the gut and it's really fantastic <laughs> uh so i hope you all go see that and and that it furthers the conversation about water well i hope everybody will rush right out and get this book because it actually i mean i as i said to alex in an earlier email I, I never would have believed that reading about the lack of water and what it's going to mean could be a page turner quite the way it was but i really i loved the book it's so well written it's so comprehensive and so interesting so thank you so much for being on the show today um i'm going to be taking a break over thanksgiving but on december 4th i'll be hosting bill marler the rock star of food safety a lawyer out in seattle who's been um very much behind making our food safer. So uh, please come back and join me again on December 4th for Straight No Chaser and uh, have a happy holiday. Thanks, Jack. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. 
You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.